Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Challoner and you join us on a sunny day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on the programme this afternoon, I'm delighted to be joined by Tom Wallard. Tom is the Managing Director and Head of Europe for Edge Technology Group. Uh, Tom, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for joining us. It's a pleasure, Scott. Thank you for uh, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves, Tom. Of course, it's not the first time that you've been involved on this uh, show. Of course, we spoke um, quite a lot about uh, leadership earlier on in the year, but of course, the world is a much changed place since then, with the real emergence of COVID nineteen and lockdowns, of course, having taken place all across the world. So there's a very different different economic landscape that we're of course um, in the middle of um, at this moment in time. But if we think about sort of COVID and how that has had an impact over the last few months. Just to what extent has it affected you and your operations, if we start there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like many firms, um, all firms, in fact, we've seen a significant shift in business behaviours and personal behaviours since since lockdown began back in uh, March of this year. I, I actually think we have a relatively unique perspective on, on this topic is the, the, the firm I represent is we're an IT managed service provider and we're a services provider for financial services firms. And so not only have, have those firms remained entirely operational throughout, part of the service we provide them with is their infrastructure solution. <clears throat> A portion of that infrastructure is, of course, their remote access to corporate systems and data. And so we've got a very broad market view over over a six-month period now to, to share with you just how organizations coped with the big bang move from office to home initially, um, but also how the organizations, and I guess more importantly, their people have evolved within that same time frame. And I think you can break the events of the past six months uh, and beyond, actually, up into three phases. Phase one would have been the initial national lockdown and the, the big bang event of moving all staff en masse from the workplace to home. Phase two would have been the more near-term aftermath of, of phase one as people and organizations got used to their new working model and environment. And then phase three is, is kind of where we are now and, and what most are working towards as we speak in a, I guess, quote-unquote, what comes next working model. And I'm very happy to share my thoughts on each of those phases if you're happy for me to do so. Yeah, of course. So do go ahead, Tom. So the phase one event I refer to, I mean, it was relatively straightforward in, in the most non-frontline and or essential businesses had, had a government mandate to, to work from home, which saw almost 100% of their staff move to a remote working model uh, overnight, ourselves included. And although this move was unprecedented and, and for most firms untested, the benefits of cloud computing, which is a phrase that we're all familiar with these days, actually enabled the workforce to mobilize from office to home, quite frankly, in a, in a, in a relatively seamless manner. And with the country being well, um, well prepared with internet and broadband services, even in rural areas these days, corporate access to systems 
were largely and readily available from home locations all over the country on the day that mandate took place. And because of the pandemic and the working situation, it caused, many believe that this event actually expedited a working trend that was actually likely to come anyway over over the next number of years. The, the second phase saw the country obviously remain in national lockdown for close to three months, and that period being when obviously nothing was really open. And during this time, I think that's when we've seen the, the biggest change, uh, or certainly the initial change in both personal and professional behaviors, as, as both evolved somewhat on either an individual by individual or firm by firm basis. And firstly, although most firms had access to corporate systems remotely overnight, they had never been designed and or intended to be used for such prolonged periods. And so remote access to corporate systems may have been used historically for working an hour or two in the evening or over the weekend. And that sort of remote working model may well be suitable to do so from a laptop in front of the television, uh, on a train during the commute, or, or even from a smartphone or tablet. But never was it designed to accommodate eight to 10 hours a day every day for, for many, many months. And so staff and the workforce therefore quickly realized that perhaps their home environments didn't lend themselves well to long-term remote working. And, and so firms had to move very quickly to accommodate changes for their staff if they were to maintain the same levels of operational efficiency as before. At the same time, individual staff and, and personal behavior, behaviors were beginning to change with almost all recognizing that the loss of the daily commute had many, many intrinsic benefits, almost all aligned to to well-being. And as I say, this, this was so much of this was aligned to the loss of the commute, which for many or for most, in fact, certainly that work within the capital, got them several hours per day back into their daily schedule. Mm. This, of course, had intrinsic benefits on reduced stress, time with family, and also for some considerable financial benefits with the loss of, of the commuting fee itself. During that period, we, we had been conducting staff surveys um, to pulse check our staff and our customers, actually, just to see how people were coping when working from home. And I'm sure, as you would expect, pretty much all reported a very common stance. They were very happy working from home. They felt that they were actually more efficient in some cases working from home. Um, and of course, given the situation, they felt safer working from home. And almost all at that particular stage um, expressed that they were reluctant to venture back into the office, considering the office place and uh, public transport, for example, far less of a safe haven than, than working from home had become. And so when the government encouraged the workforce to return, those opinions didn't initially shift much at all. And so things like businesses for ourselves, COVID risk assessments were common ground um, as, as we looked to not only perform our duty to ensure the working environment was safe and ready for a return, but also to help suppress any any anxiety that, that some and most actually still felt with regard to such a return. However, as, as we move closer to the present day, the permanent or prolonged work from home model has started to see opinion shift, albeit ever so slightly, but shift nonetheless. As staff and people recognize, quite frankly, that the home is a home and not an office, and that those two environments are actually set up very differently to support 
two very different functions and behavioral requirements. And although, for example, the use of remote access tools and video conferencing tools have been used extensively during uh, the last six months, they do come with their own challenges. And, and so, for example, there has definitely been, I think, what all would subscribe to as Zoom overload. Um, it can be very time-consuming to try and speak to your customers and colleagues in the same manner as before, purely through a computer screen. It can be very draining. It can be mentally taxing. And could you, you could, in some instances, get to the end of the day with a very long task list of work that hasn't even been started after a day of what might have been endless meetings online. And it doesn't always work. Uh, the sense of team camaraderie and spirit has been diluted. Most firms would consider their sense of culture to be a wonderful thing. It may have been built up over many, many years, and that is now highlighted as being at risk or at least being changed. And even customers, people have been un unable to shake hands with customers and or look them in the eye, which for mm -hmm. B2B organizations like us could be bad for things like long-term retention. And so, so I think simply put, we are social creatures. And although I think there will be a bit of a rethink with regard to the applicability of office space, most existing entities will almost certainly continue, continue to use them in, in one way, shape, or form. And that brings us finally to phase three. I, I think with people and organizations both coming to the realization that whilst homeworking can be incredibly productive and also incredibly powerful, not, not least because it can support staff to better meet and achieve their own individual set of personal and family considerations and challenges. The benefit of a central place of office is of equal benefit. And those surveys I mentioned, <clears throat> they now are beginning to shift somewhat where most um, as I say, ourselves included, are now looking at new ways to explore not a permanent work from home model, but a flexible working model that allows staff to meet their professional tasks and objectives efficiently, however they see fit, whether it be from home, whether it be from the office or some combination of, of both. And that hopefully gives you a, a, a relatively broad picture of, of how we've certainly seen the world over the last number of months. Mm. It certainly is going to be an interesting time, isn't it? Particularly as firms start to sort of balance their working practices and sort of understand what they're going to be doing with the conventional office environment as it was. Even when we maybe hopefully two years from now start to see the office return in vogue and sort of COVID-19 hopefully by then is no longer an issue. Um, it may not necessarily be that we'll be returning to that nine to five Monday to Friday sort of routine, will we? It's going to be very much sort of that hybrid sense of people maybe working from home one or two days on a personal basis and then traveling in and commuting for the remainder. And I think I think that's exactly it. I think there's, there's two key points there. I mean, the, the latter one, if I use myself as a as an individual case, and hopefully me saying so as as, as, the, as the leader of a, of, a, of, a, of a group of individuals will will encourage them to, to to look at their own schedules in exactly the same manner. Um, I have two kids, and for the first time. In, um, in, 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 in all of our lives, the eldest is now going to a different school. And so we have two drop-offs now in the morning and, and two pickups as, as opposed to one. Um, I will be leveraging flexible working to 
I won't be getting up any any earlier or any later. I'll probably work from home initially, make sure that the, the kids are safely on their way to school before then traveling in. That will be how I leverage the quote-unquote flexible work model because it allows me to fulfill my professional requirements while supporting my family responsibilities. Um, and it also has some of those financial benefits I mentioned earlier by perhaps traveling on um, an off-peak train ticket, which has uh, a slightly reduced rate and significantly reduced carriages. The former point with regard to the office space, I, I think, is, is also completely true. I, I mentioned that <clears throat> I do see offices I think you've got two types of companies, broadly speaking, in a, in a B2B capacity. You have your startups and all those within their inception phase, typically years, years one to two, and then you have your existing entities. I think it would be a no-brainer for a startup to perhaps leverage um, a WeWork, a Regis model, or even a work-from-home model because they're allowed to, because they haven't built that sense of culture. They don't have those existing behaviors to to consider. They can build them as part of their new model. But I do believe there would come a point where critical mass dictates they need that central place of office, which of course most, or in fact all existing entities already have. I think the rethink will be, is the office we currently have now applicable to the, the, the future requirements? So the, I think the, off, the need for offices will remain. Um, some might determine they need less space. Some might, it might actually enable some to perhaps see out their lease over a more long-term period without having to move. Um, <clears throat> but I think as, as breaks, as, as break clauses kind of come to, um, come to light over the course of the, the next, probably all within the next five years, it will be interesting to see how that really does all correlate into society, into the economy. It, it it could be good for housing. Um, we, we always hear about, obviously, how it, it, there is a significant lack of, um, certainly in the capital. You, you just don't know. I think we're going to see all of this bleed out over the next number of years. Um, and the office rethink will certainly contribute to that. Mm. I think that's absolutely right. And that is still very much to be seen over the course of the uh, the next few years, as you rightly outlined there, Tom. We talked an awful lot, of course, about how sort of the state of the uh, the world has been during this time and how it's reacted to the pandemic thus far. But on a more sort of personal level, if we switch focus ever so slightly, in your own leadership capacity, is there anything you would say that you've personally learned from this crisis management experience, if we call it that, maybe about yourself or about the people around you and how resilient they? Um, <clears throat> I was dead fortunate in in all honesty because we've, I mean, we work in working in IT for for um, in in a, in a services capacity, and and having IT as my um, my main profession, I've kind of been in crisis management really for for, for the last fifteen to twenty years. Um, but nothing obviously like this. This was a crisis that was that was shared by by everyone, and so in in the early phases. What what I really quite liked to see among both family, staff, colleagues, and and customers was this real kind of coming together in terms of I think it reset what was of true value to people, um, and that wasn't necessarily work work work. It wasn't necessarily just being at home either. It was this real kind of blended balance of work life and, and, and family values. And one of the things that we done, identified a need for very, very early on 
um, were well, the surveys that I mentioned. We, we've we've got a wonderful um, wonderful individual in the regional farm that, that helps us look after our staff um, in terms of their well being and their performance. And so, literally from from the end of March and every month since, we've been sending out things like well being surveys mm. to make sure people have been coping well. Um, that has really really helped me, I guess, in a leadership capacity. <clears throat> it, what it's done, it. It's, it's taken sales out of the equation a little bit, in 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 it, and it's kind of really grounded everyone into looking after your existing staff and your existing customers. It, it didn't feel like the time to be selling to a new audience during a pandemic, and so we really, really looked after our staff to make sure they had everything they needed, um, and also to ensure our customers had everything that they needed from. The staff in terms of um, were they happy, were they comfortable, um, what it highlighted was that not all people had a environment at home that, um, that lent itself well to not just prolonged remote working, but remote working at all, because they might be in a one-bed studio, they might live alone. And so it, it gave us visibility and insight into our staff's home environments, and we could offer help and assistance wherever possible. Um, in some cases, that that we actually brought um, virtual counsellors in to help people deal with working in isolation. And with regard to existing customers, it was really exactly the same, but I guess on a more slightly um, professional contractual basis. I.e., do you have the systems and capabilities you can that you need in order to survive in what is ultimately a global pandemic? And so that kind of sense of re- really just investing in the relationships that are the most important to us. Um, that's kind of what I'll take from, 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 from this into, I think, my new working, my new working model, really, really doubling down on the relationships you already have, investing in them even further because um, they're, they're obviously of paramount importance to you in both a professional and personal, um, personal manner. I think there is an awful lot of sense in that approach, for sure, not just for the reasons that you have outlined, but also the fact that the pandemic itself has really thrust the importance of just mental health and well-being back into the limelight, hasn't it? And so investing in that, making mental health important in terms of leadership, that is something which is certainly going to uh, get noticed. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully. And like I say, it's. Um, I, I think it, it, it's the, the the Zoom meetings have been quite humbling because I think everyone everyone within a corporate environment typically sees everyone um, rightfully or, 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 or wrongfully in, in 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 light of the structure that they that they work within. So there's there's operatives, there's managers, there's team leaders, there's managing directors, and they all fall within the hierarchy of an organizational chart. Well, I think that was completely leveled during the last six months because whilst that structure, of course, still exists, um, exists for, I guess, a decision-making and, 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 and obviously corporate applicability, when you are talking to whether it's your staff or whether it's your staff talking to their manager or their uh, MD, and you actually see, well, no one's wearing a suit anymore. Everyone's kind of in their in their in their um, in their casual clothes and within a casual environment, perhaps with mum, dad, brother, sister, 
um, kids running around the background, working in a spare bedroom, um, some working in rather elaborate spare bedrooms, some not so much. I think it was just an incredibly grounding and leveling experience, which actually brought a lot of people even even closer together. Um, and it, it definitely helped. I, th- I think putting us out there in front of our customers and our staff definitely helped. Whereas had we not necessarily done that, I think many would have felt incredibly isolated during, certainly during the initial period when um, if you were living alone perhaps, but you had nowhere to go, what the compound effect of that could have been. Mm, exactly right. And just before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme, Tom, I mean, I'm conscious um, that we are running short of time. I would like to talk about what is on the horizon in the future, because it is very important. It is going to be a very uncertain time. And in the headlines this week, of course, news is dominated uh, by the fact that there could well be harsher restrictions coming into force, perhaps a second national lockdown. So over the uh, the next 12 months, I'm interested to understand what it is that you're hoping to achieve specifically at Edge Technology Group as a business during that time as we sort of get to grips with this new normal as it's been built, but also where you do see the business being this time next year? Yeah, so we, we've had, um, I mean, just, just with regard to obviously the COVID situation, we, we've had a voluntary return uh, for all staff since July where we've, um, we've, we've, we've put in place uh, uh, I guess a, a new policy that would allow people, for example, to expense travel into the office if they felt they'd be more productive in the office. And that's in place for the remainder of the year, whilst we work on that more long-term flexible model that would actually be used um, everywhere. We have offices in, in the US, throughout Asia, uh, and in the UK. It just gives us a bit more time to think about what that might look like. Um, and that's obviously worked out pretty well, given the fact that we're still in such a fluid regional situation with regard to to lockdowns, I think having that voluntary return with a view to making it somewhat a more long-term flexible model will suit um, the the outcome of whatever the next 12 to 18 months may be. But strategically, I mean, really to follow on what we've already already spoke about, there'll be a a considerable effort um, spent focusing on existing staff and existing customers. Um, In terms of new products, what, what what we've seen as, a, as an IT and services firm is that we've gone from looking at, if you look at just one client and in region, we have the best part of 150. If you look at just one customer, typically we looked after one location per customer. We now could be looking after 10, 20, even hundreds of locations per customer now in this dispersed working model. And as I mentioned before, not only have those home environments never necessarily been set up for prolonged long-term working, um, they could also be seen as a significant security risk because there's a lot of people out there already, for example, taking advantage of um, the phrase PPE with with kind of scam marketing campaigns. We're looking at ways that we can offer our customers additional services that ultimately enhance the dispersed working model. So um, just ways to ultimately protect their home environments in the same way we would the corporate environment. And given the dispersed model is, is looking likely to remain for the foreseeable, we believe that will see us um, that that will see us good over the next twelve to eighteen months. Really, just doing the right thing via the existing audience, um, and and continuing to review the working model as and when government guidelines move and or um, hopefully in the, in the not too distant future are are completely crushed. But obviously, I think that's some time away. 
I can certainly see it being some time away for sure, given what's been in the news this week. And business is going to have to be reactive for a little while longer, isn't it? And just continue to adapt to changing guidelines and changing circumstances in the meantime, isn't it? Yeah, and I think all we can do, whether it's with our friends, our family, like I say, our staff and our colleagues, is, is talk. I mentioned we're we're a global firm. We 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 have a um, a global leadership call every single day. Um, it's it's a brief call. It, it's not um, it's not designed for anything other than to stay abreast of the current um, COVID situation. And so it's very to the point. Um, and so we we like I say, we we get a pretty good idea of what other regions are doing, what other challenges other regions are doing. I think we've all evolved to where we are today, which is something pretty consistent, um, given what the world now knows about what it is we're dealing with. But yeah, my advice would be for everyone just to talk a little bit more, because in in an environment where we are going to be stuck at home probably for um, for the for the for the short to near term, you, you can never have too many uh, you can never have too many people in your life to try and get back the feel of that sense of office. I think that's absolutely right, Tom. We are just about out of time on the programme this afternoon, unfortunately, but I have to say it's been an incredibly enlightening experience having you once again join us to discuss your views on this issue. And I actually think, Tom, it would be fantastic to catch up at some point in the next few months and have you back on the programme just to see how some of those plans you do have over at Edge Technology are starting to come to fruition as well. And also at that point, we can just reassess where exactly we are at that point in time as well. Absolutely. I'd be happy to. I'd certainly welcome that opportunity, Tom. I've certainly enjoyed having you on the airwaves again with us. And most importantly, do continue to take care and stay safe with everything still going on in the meantime. Likewise. Thank you. I would also reiterate that message to all of our listeners tuning in. Do please continue to be sensible and look after yourselves and others. It does make a real, real difference in saving lives. Um, Coming up next on the programme today, we'll be welcoming England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst, onto the programme. During his professional career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 professional league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City, among other clubs. But he remains most renowned for the fact that he is the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a FIFA World Cup following his treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany at the Old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now. He will be discussing not just some of the highlights of his own career but also the current climate in the UK and the wider world and of course the efforts of the NHS who have been wonderful throughout this very challenging time. I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as I'm relishing the opportunity to be speaking with Sir Jeff and that will be coming up next. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning, how are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope may it last. Absolutely. After a thunderstorm, it's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. 
I've asked that question, again, that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with, with this record, and goodness me, uh, it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player, uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, it would be someone like Harry, who's a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I I'm, want England to be successful. I, I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just I really want the country to do well in, in anything, in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I want up wanting to bury it. And I'll be absolutely, I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my uh, my achievements about the team being successful, whether I got two or three, in one sense is, is uh, I wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966, when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand we all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking that the game's nearly finished. I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, hand still Kowski, the German keeper by that time surely the game has got to be over but as I always jokingly say uh, I miss hit it and it and it flew in but I was thinking about wasting time not so much about uh, but certainly what I was going to do which which sorry I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours and it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. yes. I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished, but that that, that philosophy is right. You're just going to, uh, there's an element of, of, of risks uh, of making it, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not, not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life an element of maybe doing something that you're not too sure about. But sometimes in life, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long-term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague, Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about 
COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service. And we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts. And we're hanging out thank you banners, displaying drawings of rainbows, very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we've discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what, what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run up with enough, enough funding for it and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and important it is to have a health service that works efficiently and to see individually the, the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on. And, and also, into what was also, for me, fantastic, all these people from different, different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. Uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest viewing TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective, uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and, and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS, fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that... I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coming to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. Um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, and clever enough, and technically good enough to, to be around to be a, a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp who's been around a long time, would still say he is, is the best coach he has worked with. And this is, that's 50 years having been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, 
or Premier League as it is today, it's it's important you prepare the and teach and coach the players to be to prepare to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alf Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill, making sure those players were disciplined um, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined, moving from one to the other, uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was. I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a you've got a, a coach who's a team coach who's a teacher effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character who's a, who's a manager who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, a wrong reason of passing a coach person to Alf, who then managed from a discipline point of view because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. Managing people, uh, different characters, and, and all over the, the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over different characters, strengths, players into a unit to play for uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic. Uh, people in my life in my in my football life and i suppose for every sir alf ramsey and ron greenwood um, as well that you have worked with there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their um of course their peak but just of course just but just as much as you can learn from of course coaches that do get the best out of players you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well because that experience can ultimately mold you as a person can't it Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think it, leadership's important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management; they have it. But I think um, you you can learn if you're central enough to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach, what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management. So you can learn as much from people making mistakes. You can learn also from making your own mistakes. Mm. You can do something in the past that think well, like that was a really stupid thing to do, and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again. And it, it is important in all of life. You learn from your mistakes. People will make mistakes. Uh, young people will make mistakes but it's learning it's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their their career completely understand exactly where you're coming from I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly um, during your Absolutely. conversation um, with Jonathan back in February um, Sir Jeff I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood but I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time I read somewhere that during your teenage years you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that as the saying goes yeah that's absolutely true when in, in those uh, medieval days you there, were, there weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play 
you um, in our road in Greenway, as it was called in Chelmsford, we that three or four lads <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road um, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B because there weren't as many cars. No, we didn't as many cars in those days. So uh, we played acro- across the st- across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and so it's three of us play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in. Uh, flying, you know, and making balsa wood gliders, and uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, uh, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court, and uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street, and uh, we were actually. But that that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the. the the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We lived, we lived, I was born in Ashton under line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably, I was the eldest of three, when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was uh, had a big influence going back to that third gold in the World Cup in many years in the back garden and when we moved on to a, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot and so I at that time and even today it's, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed and I was maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton even Jack Charlton his brother didn't know which was his best foot he, he was fantastic but I was pretty pretty um um Two-footed, and a lot of the hat-tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child, although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my, my story is a friend of my father, I know the guy's name, called Jock Redfern, unbeknownst to me, he wrote to two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leaving age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leaving age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, Although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or, uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. 
So that's that's how it happened. The problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well, and I was messing about as I, I kindly put it between the two sports, which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development, either as a cricketer or either as a footballer. And it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me. I was a midfield player then, or centre half at school. Um, he said, "I'm going to try you up front." He put me up front in the game, and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically. And I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, the sort of messing about between the two. I had the one first-class game for Essex, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got naught and, and naught not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game for me. I filled a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game um, v Lancashire up. Up in their territory, but that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till what September, whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games for those two or three years. Extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it. And from a standing start, I think my first season around, I think September, October, I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool. And I think I played about 23, 24 games, no, 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals, like one in two from a standing start for a, mm. a midfield player. So um, quite changed dramatically. Um, that was 60, 62, 63 season, the three years before the World Cup. And when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But what was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great, uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise, it's funny how you look at, I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy, the programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to smother balls, and not just tipping balls. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you can possibly wish to meet. But he was a joke. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd, he'd have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky, very lucky, of course, to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, 
bench is one of the world class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world class player, in, but in the squad, and Ray Wilson, our left back, I'd always argue was a world class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup some world class players and Banksy was up there not with the best the best for me and another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them described trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flattered. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course, over the years, hopefully that, that has come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was uh, which is, I can see in myself. I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Greaves and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Watkins saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across. The, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player. But I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mould, mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times, uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months. And I think he, it was a, a big help to getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America, uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at Seattle, so it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate at West Ham, that we it was a great time for the club, and I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years, and it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the uh, the the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi final. 
So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close, we actually, I think we played Ajax in, in the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was I wasn't at my best, and I thought it was time to retire, which I did. And Johnny Giles was in charge then. I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year, but I made very little contributions to that success the club had. So, um, yes, it, uh, the, the, the American experience was just fantastic. I never saw it long-term being over there. That was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters, and my wife, and she was uh, pregnant with her third daughter over there. So that was, that was a good time. It's completely different. Ireland was just a, just a, I always joke about Ireland. I was there for about, I think, a month, I think it was, and I enjoyed the experience and I earned a few quid and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England. New kitchen. <laughs> So it certainly went really well. I suppose in the waning days of um, your career, um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend, as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it. I think the that kind of uh, whatever the word correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered, sort of comes. Maybe, maybe longer. Maybe in longer, not some sort of immediately after you finish playing, but in the long term. When um, uh, and I always joke with people, introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend. And I always joke and say, you only start being called a legend when you're over seventy. And I think the whatever the word is, I'm not sure, adulation or recognition or whatever. It sort of happens, and you think more about it, or it happens and occurs more in later years. Not, not certainly. Um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my, during my football career, and I think I, I went into business for twenty years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has a natural characteristic. You can learn about management on management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses is, is within them to start with. But one of the things I learned from Alfred Ramsey, which I take it into my, my business life and even my you know, talking to my family life, if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's a simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I learned during the Alfred Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at, at the time, without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything, and they're, they're left out, or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, even, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to 
they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of, of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. Ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff, thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise, thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.